When many of us think about sharing Christ with our Muslim friends, we lack faith. Let's be honest. We quietly believe eh, it's probably impossible for them to come to Christ. But is that true? Just ahead, you'll come face to face with the God of the impossible. Unforgettable stories of God at work in the Muslim world. These are stories you'll talk about over dinner, I promise. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. Our host is a guy who is endlessly fascinated with the Middle East, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and if you're new to the program, welcome. Hey, Charlie, for the benefit of newer listeners, how is our program laid out? It's laid out like a one-hour trip to Israel. We begin with current events. You know, what's happening over there? Uh, we then go to meet some of the fascinating people that populate the Middle East and uh, ministries in that region. Uh, you do that interview with individuals. Uh, then, you know, that always raises questions. And so we have a segment where people can ask their questions on the Bible, current events, what's taking place. And we'll answer those. And then finally, we end up heading to Israel itself, painting a picture. In fact, today we have a guest speaker. His name is Trophimus from Ephesus. And he's going to take us to the temple in Jerusalem. All right, so lots ahead on today's edition of The Land and the Book. And let's begin with our look at current events. Early Monday, Israel's cabinet officially approved the 2021-22 budget. Why was this such an important milestone for the new government, Charlie? And what can we expect between now and November 4, when the budget needs to be finally approved by the entire Knesset? Well, it was an important milestone because Israel's been operating without a budget for the past three years. Hmm. It's also a major step to stability because, by law, failure to pass a budget causes the government to fall, requiring new elections. That's the cycle that Israel's been in for all these years. Now, they don't yet actually have a budget. This approval was by the cabinet, but that's important because the members of the cabinet control all the major parties in the ruling coalition and every single vote is necessary to pass that budget. Uh, the budget now goes to the Knesset Finance Committee, and from there it eventually goes to the full Knesset, where it has to pass three readings before it actually becomes law. So there are still some hurdles along the way. Israel's process, though, is unique because they not only pass a budget, they also pass a very detailed document that lays out the policy changes needed to make that budget work. And these include a host of proposed reforms. For example, import restrictions are being opened up, allowing goods that meet regulatory standards in the U.S. or the EU to be imported without having to go through additional regulatory approval in Israel. Uh, they believe this will save over a billion dollars annually for Israeli consumers. Agricultural reforms will allow the import of produce, including eggs, from abroad. Uh, this change is opposed by farmers, but it will lower prices and increase availability of produce for Israelis. One proposed change eliminates the monopoly the ultra-Orthodox have on kosher certification hmm. by establishing a series of private kosher certification agencies that will be able to issue certifications under an overarching supervisory body. Now, additional funding will be allocated to transportation and infrastructure projects, to the healthcare system, and to the military. But on the downside... Taxes are going to be imposed on sugary drinks hmm. and disposable plastic utensils. So it'll cost you to cut into that freshly imported peach using a plastic knife or washing it down with a Coke. But seriously, as in any budget, there are winners and losers. And in this budget, the ones standing to lose the most appear to be the ultra-Orthodox, who, for the first time in years, are not part of the coalition. But with three months to go before the budget deadline, watch for people on both sides to do everything possible to reshape the budget to make it more to their liking. Well, last week's Iranian drone attack on a Japanese-owned but Israeli-operated oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman 
has been called a major escalation in the conflict between Iran and Israel. How might Israel respond, and what impact could this have on shipping in the entire Gulf region? Uh, It was indeed a major escalation, and it highlighted Iran's growing aggressiveness using very sophisticated drones. Uh, The attack demonstrated a high level of precision with those drones striking a moving target. Apparently, at least two drones were used in the attack, with one targeting the area of the crew's living quarters and the ship's bridge. Previous drone strikes by Iran and their Houthi allies have been launched against fixed targets, you know, with drones relying on GPS for their navigation. So this strike suggests the drones were controlled by human operators right up to the point of impact. It also shows a willingness on Iran's part to expand its use of sophisticated technology to retaliate against Israel and a willingness to launch attacks against civilian vessels at sea. Now, as a result, it does indeed have the potential to seriously disrupt the flow of oil in the Persian Gulf region, especially around the Strait of Hormuz and the Gulf of Oman. And I might add the additional incident that took place this past Tuesday with that short-lived hijacking of another ship shows that the threat there is very real and it goes beyond just Israel. Uh, Now, in terms of how Israel might respond to the initial incident, They're first attempting to respond diplomatically, trying to raise international support. Uh, Foreign Minister Lapid has called on the UN to take action against Iran for the attack. Uh, The attack's been condemned by the U.S. and England and Romania, uh, but in addition to that, is going to respond. It's just unclear what their response might be. Uh, They could try to attack Iranian assets in Syria, but that's been made more difficult by the recent Russian actions to strengthen Syria's missile defenses. So, They could attempt some sort of cyber attack or other covert attack against an Iranian facility or industry. Uh, They've shown the ability to do that in the past. But one thing we do know is that Israel will respond and the conflict between the two countries won't end anytime soon, especially with Iran's new hardline president just taking office. You're listening to The Land and the Book, also available as a podcast at our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Well, one year ago, on August the 4th, a shipment of ammonium nitrate stored in a Beirut warehouse exploded, killing more than 200 and devastating the city's harbor area. What have we learned about the blast since then? Have Beirut and Lebanon been able to recover from that crisis, Charlie? Well, the blast destroyed the harbor and a sizable portion of Beirut itself, and it's been called the biggest non-nuclear explosion in history. Perhaps the biggest news that came out recently is the FBI did a study of it, and they concluded that only about 552 tons of the 2,754 that had been offloaded actually exploded that day. In other words, the explosion, as devastating as it was, was only about 20% of the amount originally seized and held. And that raises a major concern. What happened to the other 2,200 tons of ammonium nitrate? Well, the FBI report didn't address that issue, but some have suggested it was blown out to sea in the explosion. However, there's no evidence to support that theory at all. Officials in Lebanon had previously said they thought much of the shipment had been stolen. And the question then is, you know, by whom? Hezbollah has historically played a significant role in the port, using it for its smuggling operations, and it's possible perhaps now likely, that they're the ones who spirited away much of the ammonium nitrate, possibly for their use or to help their Syrian allies make barrel bombs. It's also suspicious that the explosion took place as several ministries in Lebanon were just beginning an investigation into the chemicals that were being stored there. The harbor blast also exposed the dysfunctional nature of Lebanon's government. 
Here we are a year later, and Lebanon's leaders still haven't been able to put together a new functioning government. Hmm. Uh, Over the past year, the country's economy has collapsed. Much of the infrastructure needed to build and sustain that economy is broken. Uh, Beirut itself hasn't yet fully recovered from the blast in spite of international aid. All that to say, John, a year later, Lebanon is struggling. The harbor will eventually be rebuilt, but it'll take much longer for the government, the economy, and the people there to rebound. Yeah, for sure. Well, imagine a test that can take a drop of blood and in 15 minutes determine the likelihood of an individual developing serious complications from the COVID virus. Well, such a test has been developed in Israel and is already approved for use in Europe and England. Tell us about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. Yeah, John, imagine two people not feeling well going in to get a test and they test positive for the COVID virus. Ten days later, you know, one is recovering, having experienced, you know, the loss of taste, the cough, the fever, fatigue, and a headache. But the second is in ICU, on oxygen, with pneumonia, and having other life-threatening complications. Now, knowing which of those two was likely to develop those severe symptoms could have helped doctors and hospitals take more aggressive action early to help blunt that progression. And that's where this MEMED COVID-19 severity test will allow doctors to do just that. It was developed by a company called MEMED, that's M-E, capital M-E-D, that has focused on using technology to translate the immune system's complex signals into simple diagnostic insights. A drop of blood's loaded into a cartridge placed inside a machine, and within 15 minutes, the results are displayed on the screen. It, it provides a number between 0 and 100. The higher the number, the greater the chance of the patient developing severe symptoms. During its testing phase, the results proved to be 86% accurate. Last week, the company received approval for the device in Europe and in the UK. Uh, They've also started discussions on approval with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Now, being able to identify those at greatest risk so limited resources can be put to the best use, saving lives and helping keep doctors and hospitals from becoming pushed to the breaking point, that's definitely another great invention, hopefully coming our way soon from Amazing Israel. Hey, if we haven't heard from you lately, we would love to get an email. You can connect with us anytime at the land and the book at moody.edu. Tell us how the program is connecting with you, the land and the book at moody.edu. Muslims finding Jesus, straight ahead on the land and the book. There's no denying it. The gap between Christianity and Islam is huge. And trying to bridge that divide can seem nothing short of impossible. But then again, you and I serve the God of the impossible. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. If you just joined us, we're about to be reminded that our God really is the God of the impossible. In a conversation you'll be talking about all day long coming up. And here's something to whet your appetite. So you're a follower of Jesus, but you might just not think about the fact that when you and I think of hospitality, we see hospitality differently than our Muslim friends and neighbors. Explaining the difference is Samia Johnson, who's written The Guide to Loving Your Muslim Neighbors. What is the difference? I think the difference is we plan when we want to invite people over. 
right? We yeah, clean sure. our homes. We prepare the delicious meal. It's in our convenient time. Mm-hmm. Not for the Muslims. With the Muslims, when there is a guest coming from out of town or, you know, a husband who meets a friend on the street and invite them over, this is hospitality for them. It's on the spur. They have to be ready all the time. And for them, hospitality is sacrificial and generous because they believe part of it is good works because their yes. religion is based on good works. But at the same time, this is what brings them honor, brings their community honor, their people group, their country even. So Muslims always believe they are representing their country. Oh, we're Egyptians or we're Saudis. So because of our hospitality, we're telling you how much Saudi Arabia is good and hospitable. So how do I make my hospitality more honoring to a Muslim and put more of a spotlight on Jesus? I think uh, opening our homes and uh, Maybe having... being a little less uh, nervous about it being in the right state? Less nervous. Your yeah. home does not have to be perfect. You no. don't need to cook so many things, even hummus dip with some veggies and fruit and tea and coffee. That is enough. For them, just you inviting them to your house, it means that you are accepting them. Yes. So it's not about the food. It's about them entering your home and feeling that you are welcoming them. Samia Johnson. More at calloflove.org. Well, there's something about a good story that appeals to just about everybody. But when those stories are about people coming to know Christ, it gets that much more engaging. It's great to be among good friends here on The Land and the Book. I'm speaking of our two guests, Dr. Samuel Naman and Stefano Fear. Dr. Naman is professor of intercultural studies at Moody Bible Institute. He's also president of the South Asian Friendship Center. He has an international ministry profile and relationships literally across the globe. And he lives with his wife and two sons in the Chicago suburbs. Stefano Fear is president of Call of Hope and has been ministering among Muslims for more than 20 years. His work has taken him to both urban and rural areas throughout the Middle East, Africa, India, and Southeast Asia. The ministry makes the gospel accessible to Muslims through creative media, relational evangelism, discipleship, humanitarian aid, and church planning initiatives. Stefano resides in Germany with his wife and two children. Together, Stefano and Samuel have assembled an astounding collection of stories they share with us now in a Moody Publishers book titled God of the Impossible, Stories of Hope from the Muslim World. And we're giving away two copies at the end of today's interview, so you'll want to stay listening to find out how you can get yours. We're going to first welcome our long-distance guest, Stefano. Good to connect again, my friend. John, good to be with you. And Dr. Naman, it's always a good time when you're in the studio. It's a pleasure to be with you, John, as always. Good to have you both on the land and the book. Well, you know, we can understand someone from Pakistan having an interest in Muslims coming to faith. But Stefano, how does a guy from Germany get caught up in this kind of ministry? You know, this is something which is actually with me for almost the whole of my life. Because already my dad was the director of Call of Hope. So when I was two and a half years old, we moved into the mission's headquarters. And uh, Call of Hope works with uh, mostly Muslim background believers. So, you know, I grew up with all these brothers and sisters on the dining table. They were with us all the time. And they got dear to me and I understood how much I can learn from them. Mm. And then 
Uh, when I went into ministry after my theological studies, it was clearly the Lord leading my wife and I into this ministry. And it, and, and it was my heartfelt desire to work with these men and women of God and to yeah, minister with them together and, and help them how to reach out their people. Well, before we get to some of the excellent stories in your book, God of the Impossible, let me ask another question of Stefano, one that many are asking in America. Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Well, Sean, I think this is very easy to answer. We believe in Jesus Christ, right? We Mm -hmm. believe in Jesus, who is the Son of God, and went to the cross and died for our sins. Muslims, they know about Isa, of course, in the Quran, but Isa is not the Son of God. That's very clearly in the Quran. And Isa did not die uh, for our sins. So, so it's very clear. It's, it's not the same. Jesus and Isa is not the same. The Bible also tells us who does not know the Son does not know the Father. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's very clear that Muslims don't know the one and only true God. And this is the reason why we do this ministry. This is why it is important that Muslims actually hear about Jesus, hear about the one and only true God who loves them. Reverend Stefano Fear and Dr. Samuel Naman have witnessed countless episodes of God's saving grace flourishing in the midst of adversity, and they're sharing some of those stories with us today on The Land and the Book. Dr. Naman, you were born and raised in a Muslim country. What is your personal observation, not the media's but yours, of how Muslim women are treated in general? Uh, John, it's a, it's a very good question. By the way, I uh, just wanted to share a little bit more about my involvement yeah. Call of Hope, because a lot of people are asking, you know, SAFC in Chicago and how did Call of Hope? Uh, Brother Stefano's father and my father served together. My father actually was a Muslim convert hmm. and he served uh, with the mission in Pakistan. So I have been connected or involved with Call of Hope uh, since uh, 1980s and I also serve. Uh, uh, Brother Stefano's assistant in the U.S. You're so, holding out on us. We've had you on the program, and only now we're making this great connection. So, so I just wanted to share. Yeah, I mean, women, I mean, I think that's a very good question, and I, we have to be very careful to respond to it, you know, how, how women are treated in Islam. I think we need to separate between the teachings of Islam about women and also the cultural aspects, and I think that's something that we need to be very clear the place of women in Islam is very clear according to the Quran. And I think that, you know, anyone can Google some verses and and, uh, and basically reflect on that. I do believe that uh, the place of women in Islam is, uh, is below or is substandard as compared to the others. Legally, they do not enjoy equal rights uh, in the court of law. And culturally, though, I mean, what you see outwardly as covering, it is not Islam. It's basically culture. I mean... Women in Pakistan, especially in the rural areas, will cover their head. It's not Islam, it's more culture. In churches, too, they will cover their head. So Mm. we have to be very careful as far as, you know, what is the place of women in Islam. But according to the Quran, if you go deeper in the study, uh, you will see the difference how women are treated. We're talking with Dr. Samuel Naman and Stefano Fear, who've written God of the Impossible, 
Stories of Hope from the Muslim World from Moody Publishers. Let's get to one of those stories. Give us a story of how Christ has made a difference in the life of, how about a Muslim woman? Have we got a Muslim woman story we could reach for, uh, Stefano? Oh, absolutely. Um, For example, Fatima, uh, we write about her in the book. Fatima, a woman I know very well from Syria. Um, Fatima, before the war, before 2011, she was very well off. They and uh, she and her husband and her children had a very privileged life. They had an aluminium factory. They were really having a great life. But then, of course, the war came. They lost everything. They lost their company. They lost their house. And they came to Lebanon as refugees, and they had literally nothing. And they didn't know how to survive. And they heard that Christians actually able to help Syrian refugees with food. So she thought, well, she has never been into a church, but then if she can survive, why not? And she came and she wanted to fetch the food items. But when I talked to her, I understood when she came, she actually even forgot about the food Hmm. because she was there in a, in a service. Of course, she heard the first sermon of her life, Christian sermon. And she heard about the love of God. And this was something which touched her so much that Jesus loves her. And she came again and again. And our co-worker there, Brother John, he told me that she then came up one day and said, hey, would you need help? I would like to actually clean your room. He said, oh, you, you don't have to do that. No, 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 I, I would like to do that. Hmm. Okay. Later, they understood she just wanted to stay longer and to have the possibility to ask questions about Jesus mm-hmm. because she knew everybody else would be left. Then she has the chance to talk to the pastor and his wife and talk about Jesus. And she came again and again, and the Lord really touched her heart. And this Muslim woman understood, Jesus loves me. And she gave her life to Jesus. And you see, John, what impresses me so much is that many of them, like Fatima, the moment when they receive Jesus, their life changes totally. And it was only on her heart to let others also know about Jesus. She was talking about Jesus again and again. Everybody knew she is Christian. Hmm. And people told her, hey, stop that. We will kill you if you don't stop that. She did not stop until today. She is back to Syria now, but she is just telling about the Lord. And she once told me personally, she said, see, I lost everything in Syria, but I found the most precious and most important for me here in Lebanon, and this is Jesus Christ. And she also said, if Muslims want to shut my mouth, they can only do that by killing me. Hmm. But if they kill me, I'm with Jesus Christ. And this is the most important for me. Wow. And this is just one of the many stories in God of the Impossible, Stories of Hope from the Muslim World, published by Moody Publishers. Our conversation today on The Land and the Book with Stefano Fair and Dr. Samuel Naman from the Moody faculty. Guys, what lessons can we learn from Muslim background believers? Samuel. I think uh, 
John, thank you. Uh, I think the first thing that I have learned from my father and countless people also that uh, we see in the book is trust in the Lord and love the Word of God. The Bible is the only hope in these devastated situations that you will read. Yeah. And the Word of God has played a major role in our brothers and sisters coming to Christ in different ways, in different ways, different stages. So the Bible, focus on the Word of God, let the Muslim uh, read the Word of God in any way, shape, or form. So that's something. The second aspect in my understanding is perseverance and, and prayer, a very strong emphasis on prayer. These men and women are people of prayer. You know, you, Sister Fatma uh, that you just heard about from mm-hmm. Brother Stefano, I mean, think about it. Came to Lebanon as refugee, got saved, and now she's back in Syria. Yeah, Isn't that amazing? Other aspect that we see is how the believers, our brothers and sisters who reached out to them also shared hospitality. Actually, uh, one of them, uh, Brother Abdul, lost his son because mm-hmm. he uh, gave shelter to a new convert. So, I mean, a lot of things are happening and what we see in this book. Foundation, the Word of God, strong emphasis on prayer, patience, perseverance, faithfulness in persecution. I hold in my hand two copies of God of the Impossible from Moody Publishers, and we're giving them away. How do you get your copy? you got to be the first two to ask for a copy of God of the Impossible. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Don't say send me the book. We need the title, God of the Impossible. Got that? God of the Impossible from Moody Publishers. And email us again at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. We've just started to tell some of these stories. We're going to have another conversation. We'll have you guys back soon. Thanks for joining us today on The Land and the Book. Thank you, John. Thank you very much, Tom. Questions with Charlie Dyer next on The Land and the Book. you're curious, if you love digging into the why behind so many unique Bible questions, this is your segment on the land and the book. Welcome back. I'm John Geiger confessing I am curious. I mean, I can ask a hundred questions about just about anything without even thinking about those questions. Charlie, I suspect you're of the curious stripe too. I am. You know, there's just so much to learn and you get excited finding new facts and new truths about life and the Bible. All right, we're going to dig into questions that have come to us from listeners like you as they've emailed us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu, starting with a Jacksonville, Florida listener, Yaniv, who says, how long did it take Joshua to conquer the land of Canaan? Was it years, months? Yeah, and actually we have a good passage that will help us. In Joshua 14, Caleb provides two fixed points based on his age that help us. In in verse 7, he says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought back a report according to my convictions. And then in verse 10, he says, Now, then just as the Lord promised, he kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses. So uh, here I am, he says at the end, 85 years old. So Caleb was 40 when the spies went in to search out the land. That was a little over a year after they left Egypt. Uh, They finally reached the plains of Moab where Moses delivered the book of Deuteronomy. It says in the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month. So from the time the spies gave the report till the second opportunity they had to go into the land, well, that was about 38 years. If Caleb was 40 when he was sent to spy out the land, 38 years later when they finally reached the plains of Moab, he would have been 78 years old. And finally in Joshua 14, he says he's 85 years old. So that suggests to me 
the main battles to take over the land lasted for about seven years. Now, we're not told the exact age of Caleb in terms of years and months at each point, so the actual time for conquest could have been slightly less, maybe six years. But those fixed dates in Joshua 14 give us a good approximation. Lori asks, one of the uh, gals at our Bible study wondered if we, the church, believers in Jesus, will witness the great white throne judgment. We agree that this judgment is not for the church, but will the church witness this event? Yeah, I can't give a definitive answer since the Bible doesn't directly tell us uh, if believers will be present as witnesses at the time of the great white throne judgment. But in your extended question, you actually did a pretty good job of analyzing uh, the issue based on other scriptural passages. You know, the judgment of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25 comes to mind uh, as an example where believers are present when unbelievers are judged. Now, it's not the same judgment as the great white throne, but it's a similar type of judgment. Uh, And Jesus' words in Matthew 12 suggest that believers from Nineveh will be present at the great white throne judgment to speak against those who rejected Jesus at the time of his first coming. So two other thoughts come to mind. First, since John described the event in Revelation 20, he at least witnessed it prophetically. He wasn't simply told the event would take place. He writes, then I saw. And second, I assume Jesus will be present at the great white throne judgment. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're told that we'll be with the Lord forever. So I can't push that too far, Mm -hmm. but it at least suggests that we'll be present with Jesus during this time. Now, I'm sorry I can't be more specific, but this is one of those cases where we just don't have enough information to speak with absolute certainty. But those passages do at least suggest we might be there and we'll be more than just silent observers. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, Segment 3, where we look at your questions. Mary says, thank you for your insightful program. There is no Moody Radio station where I live, or at least it doesn't come through, so I listen on my smart speaker. Hey, that's a great idea. She says, I believe in eternal security, so I understand that someone who is eternally saved would not trample on Christ or consider his blood profane, as referenced in Hebrews 10.29. So what does that verse mean, that one could be sanctified and behave as the verse describes? Yeah, this passage and the one in Hebrews chapter 6 are admittedly difficult for everyone. Now, I see three possibilities. First, some teach a person can lose his salvation, but I'm like you. I have a problem with that because in John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give the eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. Now, if we can somehow lose our salvation, then what Jesus said wouldn't be true. So second, some believe the writer's giving a hypothetical situation. He's saying, if it were possible for a person to lose his salvation by turning from Jesus, that person would be without hope because there would be no other option available to ever return. But in this view, the possibility is hypothetical, not actually possible. Now, those who hold this position, you know, they point out verses like 19 to 25 there and 32 to 39 that bracket this particular warning. And in those verses, the writer seems to indicate that the warning he's given really isn't applicable to his audience. The problem, of course, is that the writer doesn't actually say he's just giving a hypothetical situation. And so that's the third possibility. Uh, Some believe the warning is focusing on those who've never really been saved in the first place. They made a false profession of faith, but in turning back to their old ways, they showed that they never really were believers at all. Uh, The problem with this view, though, is the writer uses the word we in verse 26, suggesting he's speaking to more than just individuals who are casual attenders at meetings and then dropped away. So, as I said at the beginning, every option there is has problems. But having said all that, I tend to think the third view has the least number of problems. The writer's describing individuals who appear to have accepted Jesus as their Messiah and Savior, but 
who, now that persecutions arisen, are beginning to waver and turn back from following Jesus. And he's saying that those who choose to abandon their faith will ultimately be showing that they never really had true faith at all. They received the knowledge of the truth in listening to the apostles and teachers, but are now choosing to reject the truth and, in effect, trample the Son of God underfoot by rejecting it all and turning away. Now, admitted, that has difficulties. Uh, For example, how can they trample underfoot the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? Well, here I assume the writer's describing potential sanctification rather than sanctification that's actually been applied to the life of the believer. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross did pay the penalty for an individual's sins, but that salvation or that sanctification isn't actually credited to an individual as righteousness until he or she actually places their trust in Christ. Anyway, all that to say, lots of problems, but I don't think it's saying you'll lose your salvation. I think he's describing potentially what can happen when someone turns away from following Jesus. It might be that they never knew Jesus at all uh, Mm. personally in the first place. Wow. Paul observes Manasseh became king at 12 years old after Hezekiah, one of the best kings, died. Manasseh did what was evil in the Lord's sight, He must have had some bad influences. His mother was Hephizba. Is that any clue as to where the source of the bad influence on his life must have been? Well, yeah, I would modify the chronology just a bit. We know Hezekiah became ill in 701 BC and was given 15 extra years of life. And we know his son was 12 when he became king. So a lot of people assume Manasseh was born after Hezekiah recovered from his illness. But there's a fellow named Edwin Tila who wrote a book that can put you to sleep, but it's a fascinating book for me. It's The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. He demonstrates that Manasseh was about eight years old when Hezekiah became ill, and then he became a co-regent with his father four years later when he was 12. So he reigned as a co-regent till Hezekiah's death, and at that time, Manasseh would have been 23. Uh, so we really don't know much about his mother, since she's only mentioned that one time. Her name means something like, you know, my delight's in her, and I assume the name was given by her parents at birth, but We don't know if she was a good or bad influence on her son. Uh, But in terms of Manasseh, I think his influence probably came from the people that uh, Hezekiah had forced to turn to God. Remember, Hezekiah had religious reforms, uh, but they were only skin deep in terms of their impact on people. That is, people had to tear down their idols and worship in Jerusalem because Hezekiah commanded it, but their hearts really hadn't changed. And as soon as Hezekiah died, I assume these individuals came to Manasseh and pushed him to return to the practices his father had banned. And since Manasseh reigned as king for 55 years, you know, 11 with his father, 44 by himself, well, he had a lot of time to undo all those reforms yeah. his father had made. David says, recently my wife has become interested in the book of Jasher. It's mentioned in Joshua 10 and 2 Samuel 1. What do we know about this book? Is it reliable, extra-biblical literature that provides more context? Appreciate any direction here. Yeah, the original book of Jasher is only mentioned those two times in the Bible. And apparently the book was known at the time of Joshua and Samuel, but afterward was lost. Now, I don't have a problem with the Bible referencing a book that was later lost. You know, the book was used only for reference purpose, and once that reference was made, the rest of the book wasn't relevant to God's revelation. Now, the Old Testament does that on occasion with other works that no longer exist. Second Chronicles 20 refers to the annals of Jehu, son of Hanani. And 2 Chronicles 9 refers to the records of Nathan the prophet, the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, and the visions of Edu the seer. Now, those were evidently written documents used by the compilers, but they weren't inspired, and they disappeared from history while the actual biblical record was preserved. By the way, in a similar way, 
Daniel records a proclamation made by King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, and Ezra the scribe records a proclamation by King Cyrus of Persia in Ezra 1. We don't have those original documents either, but we have the statements preserved in the biblical text. But back to Jasher. Later in history, two so-called books of Jasher were produced, probably trying to fill in that historical gap. The first was a medieval Hebrew midrash known as Sefer Hayasher, or the Book of Jasher. It can't be the original book, since it contains medieval names of countries and other anachronisms. It was written probably about 2,500 years after the original book of Jasher disappeared. The second book is called Pseudo-Jasher, and it was written about 500 years after that other work. It's also a forgery that claims to be a translation of the long-lost original book. Anyway, all that to say, neither of these so-called books of Jasher that are around today are historically reliable. They're rather late forgeries. Well, our podcast is always waiting for you. You can hear today's program again or share it with a friend. You'll find it at thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's devotional next, right here. Hi, I'm John Yeager, and this is The Land of the Book with our teacher, Dr. Charlie Dyer. You know, Charlie, one of my most uh, brilliant moments is when I'm doing some exploring, whether it's in a book or whether it happens to be in the Holy Land, and suddenly I discover something that turns on light for me. You relate to that at all? All the time. Those, those are the times when your eyes brighten up and you go, I got it. It makes sense. I don't think I'm overstating things a bit when I say that for many listeners, this next segment in our program, The Land and the Book, is just that for them. A kind of light turning on as you look at a passage of Scripture, kind of take us there and help us understand it with fresh perspectives. And uh, Charlie, though, I understand you've got a special guest doing today's devotional. Uh, indeed we do. And uh, let me turn it over to him. Greetings, fellow followers of Jesus. My name is Trophimus, and I reside in the great Asian city of Ephesus. You might not recognize my name, though both Paul and Dr. Luke mentioned me in their writings. So let me tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in Ephesus, the home of the Temple of Artemis, whom the Romans called Diana. My parents were followers of Diana, and so was I until I met the Apostle Paul. He's the one who shared with me the truth about God's Son, Jesus of Nazareth. It was during Paul's time in Ephesus that I became a follower of Jesus. Now, I was in Ephesus when the riots started by the silversmiths broke out. It was a frightening time for a young believer like me. The silversmiths were angry that less people were buying their overpriced silver statues of Diana because so many had become followers of Jesus. They gathered a mob that filled the theater, and the theater holds 25,000 people. The noise was incredible. For two solid hours, they chanted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Paul actually wanted to speak to the mob, but his friends, including me, wouldn't let him. Now, before that riot even took place, Paul had decided to visit the churches in Macedonia and Achaia and collect the funds that had been promised to the struggling believers in Judea. I had only been a follower for a few years, but the church in Ephesus asked me to travel with Paul to represent our people and to carry the funds they had raised for this collection. What an amazing journey! I got to meet the believers in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, and in Corinth. Eventually, we started the long journey toward Judea. I spent time with Paul, Dr. Luke, and young Timothy, and with trusted leaders from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia. It was like being on a traveling Bible study all the way to Jerusalem. 
And then I got to visit Jerusalem itself. Standing in the shadow of the temple for the first time was very moving because our Lord had walked its courts. As a non-Jew, I was only allowed to go into the outer court, called the Court of the Gentiles. The whole complex dwarfed the Temple of Diana in Ephesus, and yet I was only permitted into this outer area. What struck me most at the time was the barrier that blocked my way into the inner court and the temple building itself. On that barrier was a sign, written in Greek, my own language. I'll never forget what it said. No foreigner may enter within this barrier and enclosure around the temple area. Anyone caught doing so will be responsible for his own ensuing death. Little did I know that I was almost responsible for the Apostle Paul's death because of that very sign. But let me explain. Paul warned me about not going beyond the sign, and I paid close attention to his words. But then, a few days later, Paul went back to the temple with some Jewish believers from outside Judea. Paul was well known, but when the people inside the temple saw these strangers with Paul, they assumed he had brought me into the inner court of the temple, since they had seen me with Paul just a few days earlier. From the report I heard, it became absolute pandemonium. Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple, and he's defiled this holy place. I saw the riot in Ephesus, and now I could hear in the distance a similar riot in Jerusalem. But at the time, I didn't realize the mob had taken hold of Paul, dragged him out of the inner court, and were getting ready to take him outside the temple to stone him to death. A quick-thinking Roman sentry alerted the commander of the fortress that looked down on the temple. The commander rescued Paul. Well, uh, let's just say that's how Paul ended up in Rome. During the two years he was held captive in Caesarea, before his journey to Rome, I returned to Ephesus to share the remarkable story with our church there. Now, where was I? Oh, yes, I wanted to tell you about my time in Jerusalem with Paul because it actually allowed me to help our church in Ephesus. How, you ask? Well, it happened just last week. After a four-year absence, we received a personal letter to our church from Paul. It was hand-carried by Tychicus, my fellow traveler during our remarkable journey with Paul. He had returned to Ephesus with me, but several months ago, we sent him to Rome to visit Paul and to take some money to help Paul with his living expenses while under house arrest. Tychicus brought back a letter from Paul, a God-inspired message to our church. We listened eagerly as Tychicus read from the scroll. It was an amazing letter of triumph and hope. That is, until we got to a passage that seemed confusing to some. Here's what Paul wrote. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The overall message was clear. Jesus had provided access into God's presence for Gentiles as well as Jews. The mystery was that in this new age, both groups were part of one body, the church. But, someone asked aloud, what did Paul mean when he said Jesus had broken down the barrier of the dividing wall? Tychicus smiled and then looked at me, and I understood immediately he wanted me to answer. I can explain that. When I was in Jerusalem, I saw the barrier that divided Jews and Gentiles in the temple standing there. Gentiles were only permitted so far, and then access to God was blocked. But as I learned while there, the closer one got to God's presence, the more limited the access. Jewish women were permitted to get closer to God than us Gentiles, but then their way was blocked. Jewish men could get still closer, but only as far as the altar. 
priests could move between the altar and the temple building itself, but only certain priests were allowed inside the temple building and into the holy place, and only the high priest was allowed behind the veil into the actual place where the presence of God was said to dwell. And he was only allowed access one time each year on the Day of Atonement. I believe Paul is using the temple as an illustration to explain what Jesus has done for us. The barrier, the wall that divided us and kept us from God has been broken down and all believers, Jews and Gentiles alike, now have access to God through Jesus. I must say that I was explaining the truth for my own benefit as well as for the others who are listening. And I share it for your benefit as well. Have you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Do you believe that when he died on the cross, he was paying the price for your sin? If you've not done that, why not place your trust in him today? And if you have, then realize the great privilege you've been given. You have access into the very presence of God, his real dwelling place in heaven. It doesn't matter what your race or ethnicity or gender, the barrier has been broken down and the way into God's presence is now open to you. Well, my friend, I've talked too long, but... I long for the day when our paths will cross again. Until then, never forget the access you have to God. Wow. Hey, Charlie, thank you, and to your friend as well there. But you know, as I'm listening to this conversation, I'm saying to myself, it could be that someone's listening right now to us, Charlie, and they're hearing you talk, as your friend just did, about having access to God. And they're still confused, but they'd like to have a conversation. Could I suggest that you talk to a friend right now, another friend, a volunteer, who will pick up the phone and answer when you call 888-NEED-HIM. It's a volunteer who knows Jesus, who understands what this devotional is all about, having access to God through Jesus, and can help you as well in a plain, non-threatening conversation. Again, it's 888-NEED-HIM. There's no cost, no obligation. Just a conversation about knowing Jesus, who's made this access available, as Charlie just taught us. You know, one other thought, if you would rather uh, keep the conversation about knowing Jesus online, you can head there now. Chataboutjesus.org is a great website to use. Chataboutjesus.org. Your thoughts confidential always, of course. If it's been a while since you've visited the Facebook page, check it out. Lots of great photos there, articles, and a whole lot more to explore. Click on the Facebook icon when you visit thelandandthebook.org. And of course, we'd love to get your question on the broadcast, that thing that's been nagging at you, the thing you've wondered about as you go through Scripture. Why not email your question now to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. On behalf of Dan Anderson, our producer, Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host, I'm John Geiger. Thanks for listening. Do come back for more of The Land and the Book next week. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.